Before we get started, before any of this starts, I'd like to remind you that you can experience an ad-free version of this by clicking the link in the description that says plus.acast.com slash s slash Radio Free Catholic. May God bless you and the Virgin protect you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Exurgat Deus Dissipentur Inimici Eius et Fugiancio Deruntaeum Afacia Eius. Let God arise, and let his enemies be scattered, and let all those who hate him flee from before his face. I think this is probably the first time that I sat down to record a podcast, and I already knew the title and theme of the podcast from the moment I sat down. The title of this podcast, as you read... Things that are also true. <clears throat> because we're going to go through a bunch of things that are absolutely true. And then we're going to talk about the things that are also true. This is Caleb the Mechanic with Radio Free Catholic. Let's get started with a prayer. In nomine Patris et Filii et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Sancta Michael Arcangela, defendenos in proelio. Contra nequitiam et insidias diaboli est opraecidium. Imperetili Deus, supplicas deprecamur, tuque princeps militae calestis, satanam aliosque spiritus malignos que ad perditionem animarum, pervegantur in mundo divina virtute, in infernum netrude. Amen. Cor Jesus Sacratissimum, miserere nobis. Mater dolorosa, ora pro nobis. Sancti Joseph, ora pro nobis. Beatis Carolus et Domo Austriae, ora pro nobis. Domine, ostende facem tuum et salvierimus, Ave Maria Purissima, Immaculata Conceptio Est. In nomine Patris et Filii et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. <clears throat> Things that are also true. All right, so we're going to start with a secular example, something a little bit more personal to me, um, <clears throat> just to kind of show the layering um, because I want to, like, I want to establish a baseline, so that by the time we get to the end of this, you can see the pattern. I mean, don't get me wrong; I expect that you guys will track the pattern, regardless. But I want to make it so obvious, even a Protestant can see it. So, <clears throat> I, as a child, grew up watching science fiction, uh, mostly science fiction, and of course, comic books and stuff like that. I'm Generation X. You know, 
Star Trek The Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, Star Wars, you know, all of the, Babylon 5, Battlestar Galactica. Science fiction has always been one of my favorite genres because you can parabolize a whole bunch of topics and not beat somebody over the head with it like they like to do these days. So, of course, I, you know, I rather enjoyed, as a young man, the, the original series, but I really grew up on The Next Generation, and Deep Space Nine was the one that I think they did it the best. It was the apex of science fiction for the Star Trek universe, which is a shame when you think about it, if you were Gene Roddenberry to find it, because Deep Space Nine was the least Gene Roddenberry-esque of the Star Treks, but it was the best, because you had all of the par parallels of the real world there without it, beating, beat, without it beating you over the head. And in point of fact, actually, they were about five years, five, almost ten years ahead of their time with the series. Now, I don't remember when this series started. Um, I remember, no, actually, I do. I think it was 94, 95. Because I had just moved to uh, just moved to Florida, <clears throat> the and it was a good show. Used to sit with my used to sit with my uncle and watch it. In fact, it was one of the few times that the three of us would be in the same room because it was a good show and we all enjoyed it. And it was and it, you could say it was actually a time for peak sci-fi because you had, um, you know, you had like Stargate. Um, I think it was Stargate Atlantis. Well, the Stargate TV show had just come out, and then you had, like, Hercules and all these others. Um, but then you had, like, Star Trek, Space Above and Beyond, Babylon 5. Uh, like, it was it was a very, very large swath. <clears throat> Plenty to choose from. You also had, like, the remakes, or the reintroductions, because they weren't really remakes, but the reintroductions of things like The Twilight Zone. Um, where you could take all of these kind of short stories and sort of encapsulate them. Now... I make mention of Star Trek in particular uh, because it, as a young as a young man, it stood out beyond. When I was younger, it was I was a Trekkie more than a Star Wars fan. It's not to say I didn't like Star Wars. I loved Star Wars, but I was much more of a Trekkie at the time, and the I would say probably the thing that distinguishes a Trek fan during that time period from a Star Wars fan is that the Trek fans were just a touch more bookish. Um, not to say that Star Wars fans didn't read because most of the best stuff that came for Star Wars was in book form. <clears throat> and I'm going to be blunt, I, never, I was never a fan of any of the Star Trek novelization, any of the Star Trek novels that came out. So it wasn't that. When I say bookish, I mean most of the people that I know who were Trekkies were heavy into physics, they were heavy into chemistry, they were heavy into aerospace engineering or meteorology, like they were really, really deep into the sciences. Most of the people that I knew who were Star Wars fans were much more into the arts. And so to try and compare the two is kind of an apples to oranges sort of thing. I mean, it's ultimate geekdom regardless, but it was two very distinctively different flavors of geek. For a very, for at least a generation, for my whole, pretty much my whole generation. <clears throat> the, 
And I do, and I'm, you know, I still like Star Wars. Um, there's a lot more. I notice that since I've become a traditional Catholic, there's a lot more that I automatically filter out when it comes to Star Wars, like all that nonsense that they're pushing with balance and this, that, and you know, whatever. Um, <clears throat> and of course, all of the new stuff for Star Trek has been very, very weak, with a few exceptions, and those few exceptions are in are within like subgenres that on their own are not typically very popular. <clears throat> now, I say that because as a kid, I always wanted a com badge. The com badge was like the pinnacle of technology. It was, you know, you got a thing, you could call anyone you want, you just tap the thing on your chest and you just talk. And we've gotten pretty much there. I mean, in all honesty, smartphones have taken have kind of taken that whole thing. And with Bluetooth and all like all that stuff, I mean, you can get a com badge that you can link to your cell phone, and you can actually do the you know tap the thing and then say call mom and then you can call mom or whatever. Um, so we've reached that. But there was always something I liked about the logo above and beyond everything else, because I was heavy into the movies, and, and like, they don't have a whole lot of continuity with their uniforms and all that other stuff, but the one thing that they always kept was the thing that Gene Roddenberry actually took from the NASA logo, which was the rocket. So if you look at the NASA logo, and you can Google this while I'm talking, if assuming you're not driving, um, the, <clears throat> the NASA logo has, like, space and the earth and this that and it says nasa and then you have this red stripe and at the top of the red stripe kind of pointing as you're looking at the logo pointing up to the right hand side of the logo at the top of that stripe you'll notice that there's a break and then there's this little sort of arrow looking thing and it was that little arrow looking thing that gene roddenberry took for the logo for the star trek uniforms like the, the you know the insignia that designated them as sort of a sort of a paramilitary organization, but a, a, a uniform service, and that was the insignia, the badge, and that's what he took, and he kind of adapted it a little bit here and there, but that's the that's the logo, okay. That's where it came from. Now, where that little device came from, that little sort of arrowhead-looking thing is the military symbol for rockets. Rockets and missiles. <clears throat> of course, NASA, how did they get to space? For the most part, it, for the most part, it almost in, in almost all cases, rockets. <clears throat> now, you have rocket planes like Spaceship One, um, with, uh, you know, that's uh, being flown and developed by scaled composites in Virgin Galactic. Um, and you you know, and you've got some variations here and there, but by and large, just rockets. And that symbol is the symbol for rockets. <clears throat> I know it's the symbol for rockets and missiles because I was a heavy weapons infantryman, and that logo was used to denote anti-armor units that were equipped with rockets. And they had variations to the logo if you were on a tank, a, a tank or a tracked vehicle, or if you were mounted on a truck, or if you were dismounted. There's slight variations, but the core of that logo stayed the same. Now, if you take that logo from Star Trek and you turn it sideways, 
it is one of the symbols in, electro in electronic programming for a logic gate. Same symbol is a logic gate, is a weapon system, is the means of transportation to space. So, <clears throat> when I say that the Star Trek, the, the Starfleet insignia for the combat is quite possibly the best single device ever developed by man, it is specifically because it denotes it calls to mind, in one orientation, a very popular science fiction series. In another orientation, it calls to mind, or in another application, it calls to mind ba battlefield tactical and strategic planning. And it is also used for program as part of a programming language. One symbol, three uses. <clears throat> Arguably a trifecta. It also evokes certain certain concepts. So as the star so as the as the Star Trek logo, the symbol for Starfleet and the Federation, there's a nobility to it. There's a like there like it you it come it comes with the nobility, the aspiration to the stars, that call to exploration, etc. In another avenue, it's a threat or a defense. And in the third avenue, it's a language. All of them are very, each of those things are true, despite the fact that they are completely, in and of themselves, they are completely unrelated to each other. You have one symbol that is true for three different paradigms. So, <clears throat> obviously around my house there may or may not be one or more of those logos from that TV show that means for me all of those things. All of those things at the same time. It's secular, completely secular, but it's a kind of transcendent secular concept. Now, it's not to say I have a whole bunch of Star Trek stuff around my house. In truth, actually, most of the stuff I have around my house are from things other than Star Trek. <clears throat> the vast majority, like I would say the highest concentration of stuff is actually Catholic art and artwork. But we are still in this world. And so, in one of my rooms, there's a collection of all of the things that I've managed to, <clears throat> all of the ideas and concepts that I've managed to come across over the course of my life. And I hope to add more because it's kind of fun. It's my way of, it's my way of keeping a record because every one of those things is connected to a concept or an idea or a memory or perhaps even a place that I've been, physically or spiritually, all of those items have some kind of significance. Even though, and I'll be blunt, I mean, it's a bunch of like $10, $10 $20 items that are pretty cheap on their own. <clears throat> they only actually have 
the intrinsic value for what they symbolize to me. Which is why a burglar, if they ever burgled my place, would get a whole lot of nothing. <clears throat> I mean, he might get a few things of moderate value, but the reality is, is I think if you, if you were to take all of my stuff and sell it, you might get about 500 bucks out of it. And that's if you sold everything. Because it's not particularly important for me to have the nicest stuff. It's very important to me to have stuff that means something. <clears throat> so, the way that I opened with the Starfleet logo, the Star Trek badge, so you can kind of see how I'm looking at something far more serious. St. John's Apocalypse. See, I noticed there's a lot of people within the Catholic community, particularly in the traditional Catholic community, but in the and not just in the Catholic community or the or traditional community, but also among Protestants and among Christians of all flavors. <clears throat> you know, the entire if if you look, the entire spectrum of Christianity, from the true from the one true faith through all of the flavors of heresy, they have something in common. We look at St. John's Apocalypse and we want to know what it means. Now the church has established the overall meaning and so for Catholics we know what it means but we don't know necessarily what every chapter and verse, what every passage, what every paragraph, what every chapter symbolizes. What it's actually calling our mind to. Because most of it is in parable. With the exception of the opening chapters, when, when uh, Christ gives his message to the seven churches, which is very blunt, you do these things great and you suck at this. You do these things great, but this is going to condemn you to hell. You're pretty good at all of these things, and you're kind of a little bit weak at that, but this is going to be the fatal flaw. And it's clear. It's blunt. You've got all of these gifts and you've got no charity. You've got, you're lukewarm. And that makes you an abomination because you, because you know the faith, you're trying to live the faith, but you're kind of half-assing it. And in all of that, blunt. And then of course, the, you know, the, the symbolism that is the calling card for who it is who's giving the message. But after that, from there on, there is very little that you can just take verbatim, that you can just take as were as, as literal, like something literal fact, like something clear, blunt, upfront, no parable, no metaphor. And this is important because while there is the opportunity to see things very much, this is exactly the way it's going to turn out in the descriptions and thus and so, it is also meant to be something that is also true in other circumstances. If you look back over the last decades, 
particularly since we have enough easily reachable data. So like you can run Google searches and still find a lot of this stuff, um, you know, until they actually go out of their way to purge Christianity from the internet altogether. But you can still go out and you can still run your searches and find, you know, these prophecies and that prophecy and this, that, and the other, and these explanations and these predictions from these pastors and these, like you can, you can pretty much find them all over the place. And all of the ones that are not anchored in the one true faith are the ones that pretty much go and the way of the dodo when a date comes and goes. So for example, <clears throat> Pope John Paul II believed that he was the Pope in the prophecy. And he had good reason. Because they talk, because there's a lot of stuff in Catholic prophecy that talks about the close of the 20th century. And this was one of the reasons why I made mention in the previous, um, the previous podcast, the end of the 20th century and an explanation of the end of the 20th century on why I believe that the human calendar was maybe off by about 20 or 30 years. Because in the ebb and flow of the church, everything seemed to be about 20, you know, our lady, our lady of Guadalupe appears in what? 1531? 1531, 1534, somewhere in that range. I don't have it. In, I don't have it directly in front of me, as you know. Actually, you guys may not know this. I do most of this stream of conscience. So unless I actually stop during the podcast and look it up, um, I'm doing most of this from the hip. So don't hold me too closely to the dates because I'm going to try and give myself a little bit of leeway because I could be wildly wrong. Because <clears throat> um, I do most of this from memory. But Our Lady, but Our Lady of Guadalupe shows up in 1531, 1534, somewhere in that range. Well, that's a good century mark because it would still be, 1533 would be 15 centuries after what should be the most holy day in the church and the, and the anchor point for the church calendar. And don't get me wrong, the birth of Christ is ridiculously important. But if you were going to rate it in levels of importance, even though we're talking about the importance of the infinite, if you're going to rate it in the levels of the importance, the birth of our Lord is significantly less important than the death and resurrection of our Lord. It's the reason why, we could, because we're talking about our birth into, all of the saints' days are the birth into heaven. So it would be more important to mark the the beginning of the calendar at the date at the at the at the year of his death and resurrection and his ascension into heaven. That would be the more logical. Because at that point, once Christ ascends into heaven, everything else from there is anno domini. Because that's the more significant point in his life. And it, like I said, it's not to take away from the, obviously, it's not to take away the, from the importance of the birth of our Lord, but his work on earth was consummated. It was done. It is finished, as he said. Thirty-three years after his birth. 
So that should have been the zero point. That should have been the beginning of the calendar. And had that been the beginning of the calendar, then you would notice more significant things would happen at the turn of the century. Now, it is divine providence that it didn't happen that way because everybody who thought, oh, in the year 1500, it's going to be blah. In the year 1800, it's going to be this. In the year 1900, you know, and all of those prophecies that talked about the turn of the century. And then they failed to come to pass because we won't know the date or the hour. And we certainly would have gotten a little bit more a little bit more. We'd have been a lot more crazy if we knew that the big things happened right at the... Like, at the every the every century, just boom, ma magnitudinous event. I know that's not a word. It just sounded good. <clears throat> and so it's better that these things actually, you know, the, the centuries pass. The date on the calendar passes so that the significance of the event when it happens is more. Key example. 1830. The date stamped on the miraculous medals. Would it have been better if it was stamped in 1800? Or do you at least get a chance to, you know, throw people off the scent with it being 1830? I'm not even joking. Our whole lives would revolve around the centuries if we'd actually got that part of the calendar right. And we would be much more psychotic as a species if this, if this year, in 2022, was actually the year 1992. Because then we would be counting down to the end of the, to the, end of the millennium going, okay, it's going to happen. It's absolutely this time. And admittedly, this time we'd probably be right. And we would totally miss the point, miss the rest of the significance. Because, let's be real, we're made, we're made in God's image and likeness. But glory be to God on the highest that we're not as smart even as the angels. Because we, oh, you want to talk about a sin of pride? Imagine the human race was actually more intelligent than it is. Ugh. We'd all go to hell just because we wouldn't, we'd never... We would never be able to we would never be able to deflate our egos enough to be humble. At least, at a minimum, with us being as stupid as we are, whenever we get on our high horse, there's at least somebody there to go, nah, you're an idiot. You wear your pants on the outside, or whatever. At least. Satire would always be a death penalty offense if we were as smart as the angels. So glory to God that we're not. <clears throat> now, that having been said. Oh, and if you want to hold, in all honesty, I would not be against the idea of a conspiracy theory saying that, that Pope St. Gregory the Great did it on purpose. 
that it was a deliberate that it was a deliberate thing to throw everybody off to make sure to make sure that the date and the hour was never known and we couldn't even begin that's a conspiracy theory i could get on board with <clears throat> so could <laughs> yeah anyway already talked about that enough now what's been the big topic of conversation for like the last 50 years easily searchable it's the rise of the antichrist the antichrist we're all looking towards the end those of us who are paying attention to this at all we're all looking towards the end because we're looking for the rise not of an antichrist but the one the big one the one the one that signals that we got seven years left and that's a wrap we're all looking for him So what do we do? We go through we go through sacred scripture, we peel through, you know, we pour through the book of Daniel, we go into the apocalypse, we look at all of the prophecies of Ezekiel and of Jesus and and of St and of St Paul, we go back into Catholic history and we look at the prophecies of the saints and we try to peel it and parse it and figure it out and we're trying to knead it and mold it and figure out just, you know, trying to just open it up enough, just enough so we can get our heads inside and, or, and get it well, either get our hands inside or close it up enough where we can wrap our heads around it. So that we can at least be like, this is it. We got it. We know what's going on. <sighs> Thereby illustrating how stupid we really are. Because if we, any of us actually knew bit by bit, piece by piece, we would go to hell. Because if we knew, we would forget that the vast majority is conditional. The vast majority of prophecies are conditional. We don't have to meet all of the bookmarks in chronological order for Catholic prophecy to be true. There are there are some events that precede others. There are some events that have to come subsequent to others. But we don't have to check the marks. Like, we don't have to go, okay, chapter 5, Apocalypse chapter chapter 5, check. Apocalypse chapter 6, verse 12, check. Verse 13, check. Verse 14, check. That's not how Catholic prophecy works. It's conditional. How do we know? The book of Jonah. What does Jonah do? He... <laughs> He gets the message. The Lord goes, I want you to go to the city of Nineveh and I want you to prophesy and tell them that in 40 days, that's a wrap. And he's like, I don't want to do that. Nineveh's so far away. And by the way, what happens if? Then what do I look like? I look like a rube. I look like a moron. Why am I? No, I don't want to do this. And after some finagling and fighting and struggling and stressing and all that other crap and three days in the whale or the fish, does it really matter if it's a fish or a whale? I like the whale better. You know, they're better looking. Certainly less ugly than a lot of fish. <clears throat> but whether or not it was a fish or a whale, really actually immaterial to the story. Three days in the ocean, in the abyss, encapsulated by a seagoing creature in the abyss, and then vomited out right there on the beach all right, we'll go. And he goes to Nineveh. And what does he do? He says, in 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed. Meh. 
And the message goes out among the people, and the king tears his garments and <clears throat> rips his garments and puts on sackcloth and ashes and declares, we need to do penance. And they do the penance, and God says, cool, I'm not gonna, we're not going to destroy Nineveh. Nineveh. Nineveh's still pretty dope. They're still good in my book. It's good to go. They were penitent. They made reparation. They did everything that they could. Everything, you know, because we're talking about before Christ. So, you know, the sacraments aren't really, you know, it's it's a different deal. They do what they're supposed to do. They render honor to God. They ask for forgiveness and he forgives them. And the prophecy of Jonah, which was absolutely true, nonetheless, never comes to pass. Because they fulfilled the conditions to make it not come to pass. Prophecy was true. Straight out of the mouth of the Lord. And even Jonah, mad about it, because like, I just went through all this thing, now I look like a rube, I look like a, you know, a, a, come on! And then God's like, dude, seriously, like real? Like you're being real right now? Like take a look. And I hope you've actually read the rest of the story, but I'm synopsizing in a very sort of obviously not, <laughs> I'm not a priest, I'm a mechanic. You guys came for priestly, you know, homilies and stuff. You're in the wrong spot. The, um, but that's largely how prophecy goes. Abram looks at God and goes, if I can find 10 people, will you still destroy the city? God's like, okay, if you can find 10 good people in the city, I won't destroy the city for their sake. The other part shows he can be negotiated with. Now, couldn't find 10 good people in the city. Oops, that sucks. But if Abraham could have found 10 good people in the city, Sodom stays. Conditional. Which means the date and the time aren't written in stone until our hearts turn to stone. And that's really what's going on there. The dates and the times don't become written in stone until it becomes obvious to God that no amount of his grace is going to soften our heart. And at that point, he writes it in stone and it comes to pass. Metaphorically speaking. <clears throat> Although it does really come to pass. So we're looking into the apocalypse and we're looking into the book of Daniel. And we're looking into all of these prophecies and we're trying to find where the Antichrist is. We're looking for the one. Well, congratulations. This is Captain Caleb of the Federation starship Wet Blanket. And I'm about to school you on something that maybe we should be paying attention to. And I categorize it under the things that are also true. I was distracted earlier today Thinking about Volodymyr Zelensky. Volodymyr Zelensky, for those of you who don't know, is of Jewish patronage. 
He's also at the very center of global affairs right now. So wouldn't it stand to reason that he is the Antichrist? He would have to be, right? He checks most of the boxes. New, young, this, that, and the other. I mean, he's propaganda. I mean, he's on it, right? Run down the list of all the things that you kind of expect of the Antichrist, and he kind of checks those boxes. Well, it was a great distraction. Is he the Antichrist? He could be. I don't know. Maybe we'll find out. Whatever. I'm not worried about it. Because here comes the wet blanket. <clears throat> Is Emmanuel Macron Antichrist? Is Klaus Schwab Antichrist? Is that Harari fellow who talks about programming humans as hackable animals anti-Christ? Is Justin Trudeau anti-Christ? I mean, the jury might still be out on King Charles III. He might be anti-Christ. Seems to be the case. He's been anti-Christ for a lot of the stuff that he advocates for. So he might be anti-Christ. It's distinctively possible. Is Joe Biden anti-Christ? What about his press secretary, Corinne Jean-Pierre? She anti-Christ? I mean, she doesn't seem very pro-Christ to me, so I would assume she's probably very anti-Christ. That one dude who's the who's the monkeypox czar. I mean, he's a Satanist, isn't he? So he's definitely anti-Christ. Xi Jinping, you think he's pro-Christ or anti-Christ? See where I'm going? In the history of the world, from Australia to South America to Europe to North America to Africa to Asia, there has never been a time in history when so many people with so much power have been anti-Christ. Why are we looking for the Antichrist when there's 50 of them? Why are we so worried about whether or not this is going to be the end when it's obviously an end and it's probably an end to everything that we hold dear? I don't need the Antichrist to be on earth right now. All he would do is add to the problems that I've already got. And the problems I already have is watching as everything and everyone I love be moved to the chopping block. And it wouldn't be that big a deal. I mean, the everything is kind of secondary because it's material. But everyone I love, if they end up in the chopping block, they're damned. Without some special move of divine grace without a huge outpouring of divine mercy, everyone I know personally, everyone I've personally met, everyone I've personally talked to where I've shook their hands thus far. And I say that to kind of caveat everything in because, of course, I'm in communication with many Catholic podcasters. 
But all of the people that are actually active in my personal life, not a one is a Catholic. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. There might be one or two people at work, might be, I don't know for sure, but there might be one or two people at work, but most of everybody else, you know, you know how you have like those, those, um, those indicators of predestination, you know, someone who prays the rosary daily, that's a mark of someone who's predestined for heaven. Well, there's marks for predestination to damnation as well. And those are far more prolific than the, indica- than the indicators of predestination to heaven. There are far more people who have those indicators that they are predestined for hell. Why? Because they blaspheme daily. Because they, because they talk about giving honor to God, but they don't actually give honor to God. Maybe they go to church, maybe they don't. If they do go to church, it's far more likely that they just show up on Sunday, they do their, you know, they pray their little bit, they sing their hallelujahs, because I know a lot of Protestants, so sing their hallelujahs, and then they carry on the rest of their life like nothing, like everything's fine. They generally try to be better people-ish, but they don't have anchoring in the one true faith, so they don't have the deposit of faith, which is all of that very ridiculously important information that you need to truly conform yourself to the truth. They've got that fluffy thing going on. Now, most of them aren't prosperity gospel types, but most of them are, you know, I mean, 
they don't they don't give a second thought about the mother of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And if they do, maybe it's a derisive thought. Far more prolific is that opinion. But even more terrifying is the increasing number of people who've decided that Christianity in all of its forms is not good enough. It's not good enough at all. So they walk away from God altogether. Very few of these do I actually know. Most most of the people I know are pagan. They might be operationally atheistic, but for the most part, they're pagan. You know, they're Odinists or Wiccans or, you know, various other forms. And I'm going to say or Wiccans or various other forms because even that is sort of dissolving into this new age milieu that is kind of untrackable anymore. But they're the kind of people who, like, they start to feel bad about stuff and they and they go someplace and they buy some sage. And maybe they go to a specialty store that actually offers the occult. Or maybe they go to some herbalist who just happens to have sage. But they'll, they'll get some sage and they'll light the sage and they'll smoke up the house with sage and this, that, and the other and think that that's going to work for them. Of course, you know as a Catholic, you know as a traditional Catholic, that you, you know all they really did was just call seven more demons. If it's only seven more demons into the house. You know, they turn their home into the demonic Motel 6. They'll just keep the light on for them. Or maybe they, you know, go out. Maybe they do go to a New Age store and they pick up some crystals. And they got their little thing and, you know, some tchotchkes here and there that's sort of generally kind of sort of almost a little bit religious. Maybe. More often, they worship at the altar of the beast. What's the altar of the beast? He just actually called out the altar of the beast specifically. Well, if you've been listening to this podcast, then you know my thoughts on that. That the altar of the beast is that black mirror that sits as the centerpiece in most people's living room. Where there should be a home altar. With some Catholic art. And maybe an image of the sacred heart. Instead there's this black rectangle that lights up and gives you talking images. Images that can talk and put ideas in your head. Images, in fact, the device itself and the communication and, the, and its method of communication when you're watching vapid entertainment is specifically designed to recode your brain to his way of thinking. And it's more often that people worship at that altar. And if they don't worship at the big altar, the one in the living room, the 71-inch screen with the surround sound and the LED lights and this, that, and the third with the comfortable chairs where they can sit and veg out, then maybe it's the mini altar that everybody keeps in their pocket. You know the thing that everybody keeps in their pocket when they should probably keep a crucifix and a rosary? And they worship there. Because the easy part about that one is you can worship everywhere. It's a mobile altar, just like what Father used to carry back in the war. See, these things are also true. 
So we hear of wars and rumors of wars, and I don't understand why Catholics in America find it difficult to believe that the Red Horseman has been gallivanting around the earth for the last 100 years. I mean, it had been a while since the White Horseman had been sent around the earth, but he did go around. And it's interesting that I've only ever heard a few people make note of the fact that the White Horseman is given a bow and a crown. No arrows. Oh no, carries a bow, given a crown. No arrows. No fiery darts, just the bow. And the crown. Which should have actually probably been the bigger clue. As soon as we heard the name, what SARS-CoV-2 actually stood for, we should have stopped. Forget about whether or not you think it's real. It should have stopped you dead in your tracks. Problem is, most people don't know enough about sacred scripture to know the white horseman is given a crown. Even if they did know, the fact is, is most people, when they hear the word corona, they think of the beer. They don't think of the fact that it's Latin for crown. And right on cue, things happening in sequence. I mean, yes, we have another war coming out, but what's coming along with this war? What was already precursor? What was already prefigured? What has already started to show its ugly head? The Black Horseman. Famine. Pound of wheat for a day's wages and two pounds of barley for a day's wages and do not hurt the oil or the wine. And we're waiting to see if the green horseman, the pale rider, is next. Seems to be, seems to be picking up a bit of steam. If you listen to this podcast, chances are you've managed to hear that deaths by unexplained causes seem to be on the rise for, for young people aged pretty much 16 to 39. But it's going to be famine that kills us and disease, probably because of, you know, the response to SARCO2. Those will be the things that kill us, but preeminently, things that are also true. The wages of sin is death. The thing that would have been preeminently important, both to our Lord and to St. John, would have been the condition of the souls on earth. Remember that our Lord said, famously, for when the Son of Man returns, will he find any faith upon the earth? Will there be anyone still alive in Christ? And if you were to do 
a quick survey of the Earth, you might find 144,000 people still alive in Christ. And I do believe that 144,000 people is a reasonable number. Even amidst the 8 billion 144,000 is a reasonable number. Why? Pornography. Homosexuality. Transgender ideology. Blasphemy. Pride. Greed. Lust. Sloth. Gluttony, wrath. Do you honestly believe in a world that doesn't really spend a whole lot of time fasting and praying and doing penance? In a world that largely, actually, the vast majority of people don't even believe that it's, a, that it's even a worthwhile endeavor? Even among the ones who do believe it's a worthwhile endeavor, there's still a huge portion of those who are Buddhists and Hindu. There's still a huge portion of those who are Muslim. There's still a huge portion of those who are pagan. And it's in fact the minority that are Christian. It's probably statistically zero, but in the, like, one out of 500,000 people in all of Protestant Christendom that actually practice fasting. And they probably, in all honesty, likely do so as a part of a physical fitness regimen rather than out of devotion to Christ. Like, really? Yes, really. I know more people who do CrossFit who fast intermittently who actually take time out to fast than I do Christians, even Catholics, who fast. Weird, isn't it? But the pornography one is by far the biggest killer. By far. It's always sexual sins. But the pornography one, by far the biggest killer. Something like 50 billion clicks every month. How many people are still alive spiritually? I mean, seriously, think about it. How many people are how many people are still in a state of grace? with 50 billion clicks a month. And then even the ones who do believe that pornography is a bane, surely that's a very small number outside of Christendom, outside of Christianity altogether. Very, very small portion. Statistically, zero. Which, by the way, in a planet with seven and a half, eight billion people, 
144,000 people is statistically zero. One-seventh of one-thousandth of a percent. That's statistically nothing. So from the spiritual standpoint, the world is already dead. The Pale Rider has already reaped his reward. Because the vast majority of people alive today are not going to have the opportunity to repent in time to be saved. Because they've already condemned themselves by their habits. Because they've already grown so accustomed to it that the likelihood of them actually becoming soft-hearted enough that God's grace can actually work in their lives. Because it's not to say that he's not going to pour it out upon them, but it's probably going to be futile in many cases. In most cases. Especially if you happen to be one of those people who dare we hope all men will be saved, because you have no reason to repent if all men are saved. And whether it's Protestantism or this nouveau theologie in Catholicism, the fact is, is most people believe... They behave as though they believe that in the end all men will be saved. That in the end, God couldn't possibly discard not a single bit of his creation. So let me pour cold water on that. Again, Captain Caleb of the Federation Starship Wet Blanket coming to your rescue. For those of you out there who are somewhat artistically inclined, have you ever had a drawing that turned out so poorly you just threw it away? For those of you who are mathematically inclined, when you're working on something, when when something goes wrong and you've filled up that page with all of those numbers and you're trying to work out that formula, What do you do when it's wrong? You crumple it up when it comes out wrong. When you make a mistake, you see, even if you see where the mistake is, what do you do? Once it's wrong, what do you do? Crumple up the paper, you throw it away, right? What happens if you have a glass that you're gonna pour coffee, hot coffee into, and when you pour the coffee in, the glass shatters? You throw it away, don't you? Well, amen, amen, I say to you, we are more close to the coffee cup than we are to God. The coffee cup, the paper, the drawing, the painting, the sculpture, whatever it is that you decide, okay, well, that didn't turn out right, so you decide to destroy it. Whatever it is, you are closer to it in the order of creation than you are to God. Exalted though we are above all of the other creatures in creation, the fact is, is as a physical creature, we are closer to the ashes and dust of the earth than we are to God. 
Because we, like the coffee cup, are finite. We, like the canvas, are finite. We, like the sculpture, are finite. We, like the math problem, scrawled on that long, it doesn't matter how many pages you took. The fact is, is when you're done, it is finite, and we are closer to that than we are to the infinite. And it's just a fact. It's a natural, obvious fact. And in the same way that we would take the broken coffee cup and take the shards and toss it in the trash, is in the same way that when we reject God, he's going to let us have it. You want to be broken? You can have brokenness. Let me just tell you, I think the scariest thought that I ever had about hell was, it's, it's not... I tell you honestly, as terrifying as the images shown to uh, to uh, Sister Lucia and blessed uh, blessed Francisco and Jacinta, uh, Jacinta and Francisco, as terrifying as those images are to conceive, it was never as terrifying as the idea that whatever it is that I choose above God. When I die, God will give me that infinitely. Because some of the things that I've chosen above God in my past... Make that prospect horrifying. I cannot describe. First off, I wouldn't describe it anyway. There's a Catholic podcast. But even if I could, the extremity of what that means. Let's say that I chose pizza above God then hell would be me being force-fed pizza for all of eternity. Let's say I chose drunkenness above God. Sex. Money. Fame. It's no secret why famous people tend to fall off really, really quick. Could you imagine? Oh, I want to be the center of attention more than I want to worship and honor God. Ooh. Imagine. And so while it is obviously true that we'll be thrust about like so many ashes and embers into and out of the heat, never to fall in control, never to actually regain, never to gain some level of stasis, some level of stability or security, while that's probably absolutely true, 
it's probably more true that the reason why it looks like that, the reason why it kind of comes out like that as a metaphor, one is because someone, you know, like the three children, they would not have comprehended what those torments actually were. And what they saw was horrifying enough. Their own testimony. If we did, if 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 it would have been, if it would have lasted for so much as a few more seconds, they would have died of fright right where they stood. And remember that it's those condemnations. It's all the church teaches that the chastisement, the punishment, fits the crime. Even in purgatory, the punishment fits the crime. The descriptors are different, of course, but the punishment absolutely fits the crime because it is perfectly just. So it easily stands to reason that those things that you chose above and beyond God, the things that you chose to worship rather than God, would be the very things that you're tormented with, would be the very things that you get for all eternity, nonstop ad infinitum. And it looks like our world is going to get that soon. The other problem I have with our Protestant brethren is that they cannot see the things that are happening politically today as divine justice. They don't, like, some of them, they kind of through, as though they were looking through a veil or, you know, through a dark mirror, they're, they kind of see it a little bit here and there, but they don't, they're, not, they're not really connecting with the concept that we are getting everything that we're asking for. If Someone like Glenn Beck, who just did a show, as I record this, the night before, um, the Wednesday the Wednesday show of this week that he does that's on YouTube, and you should be able to find it if you want to find it, when he goes through the chalkboard, because he's not Catholic, because he doesn't understand Catholic prophecy, I mean, he's Catholic, like he's a baptized Catholic. He's a fallen away Catholic. He's a Mormon now. He's effectively, he's a, he's a heretic or an apostate, depending on how far you want to take that, whatever. But the fact is, is because he's not a Catholic and he's unfamiliar with Fatima, he's completely, he's completely unaware that his entire show was about the errors of Russia that would be spread around the world. But as a Catholic, if you carry if you carry the apparition and the message of Our Lady of Fatima, no matter how loosely, and you realize that the chalkboard that he's going through, all of the things that he's talking about, are literally brought by an ex-KGB agent from the Soviet Union. They are literally the errors of Russia, brought into America and disseminated throughout the Western Hemisphere. 
throughout not just the Western Hemisphere, but everything that we consider to be Western civilization, spread throughout Europe, spread throughout America, spread throughout Canada, Britain, the United Kingdom, the whole of the United Kingdom, all of those errors spread from Russia. And if he was Catholic, if he had a devotion to Our Lady of Fatima, he would know it. He would see it, and he would know it. He would recognize it immediately for what it is. And instead, or in addition, because he probably would still run the radio show and the television program and the network and all that other stuff, but in addition to that, he would probably be on his knees nightly with his children and his wife praying the rosary nightly. Because everything he said is also true. He's recognized at least enough that this is spiritual warfare. And in all honesty, based on what I've seen, I do believe he may get the grace to convert, even as a deathbed conversion. Because there are very few people who have been as, as open about the search for the truth. And there are things, I mean, don't get me wrong, the guy's blind about a lot of stuff. I mean, he's, and he's in a fake religion that was founded by Freemasons, for crying out loud. He's in the enemy's, he's in the enemy's church and he has no idea. So it's no surprise that it's a struggle for him. And it's like that with a lot of people. The more tr the more traditional Catholics who are still stuck in the media, and I mean like the main like the big media, the mainstream grand grand design media, the corporate media. I'm not just talking like EWTN. I'm talking like. Like, you go through all of the, I mean, for crying out loud, you had Hannity, who was a Catholic for so long, and then he finally, oh, he had enough, and he decided that the sins of the, the sins of the, <laughs> the temporal church was enough for him to make, to, for him to leave eternal Rome. But his line of thought wasn't exactly great while he was still a Catholic. And maybe we'll, maybe we'll manage to save some. Maybe. But I mean, you still have church malignant out there, and they're supposedly Catholic as it is, but they generally behave in the least Catholic manner. All for the name of journalism. And I gotta be honest with you, I don't want to find out what their hell looks like. I don't even want to know. Obliquely, I don't want to know. I would prefer that all of them go through their conversion. I mean, they're close enough that it's not hard. It's a very short step. They profess the faith. All they got to do is just figure out, you know, the ways they're not living it and then fix that. It's not, they don't have a very long way to go. So it's not outside the realm of possibility. 
They certainly don't have the distance to cross that Klaus Schwab does. Although, admittedly, it's more likely that someone like Klaus Schwab would be the convert and they would be left behind. <clears throat> All those things that are also true. We're looking for the Antichrist. But my ultimate wet blanket is why the hell would I be looking for the Antichrist? When there's an Antichrist in the White House, there's about 200 or 300 Antichrists in the Congress. There's at least three or four Antichrists on the Supreme Court. There's about 14 antichrists in governor's offices across the country. There's probably close to 150 antichrists in district attorney's offices and state's attorney general's offices nationwide. There's probably thousands of antichrists wearing police uniforms. There's certainly 20,000 antichrists who work for the FBI. 87,000 more for the IRS. Why the hell do I care about the Antichrist when I'm surrounded on all sides? It would seem that I'm missing the forest for the trees. Which brings me to that final thing that's all that's also true. The fact is, Antichrist, the Antichrist, is not mentioned in St. John's Apocalypse. Because he doesn't have to be. Because it's not about the Antichrist. The Apostle St. Paul talks about this as well. The Apostles all taught this, that it's not really about the Antichrist. It's not about the final one. It's about the one that brings about our death. Your death. My death. The death of your husband or your wife or your children. And not their physical death necessarily. In point of fact, actually, if they die being Catholic, then they're not dead at all. But it's their spiritual death. It's the charnel house of this modern world that has annihilated souls. You're busy looking for the Antichrist so that you can be ready for the end times. And that's not going to stop you from catching a nuke to the face. Because God's decided that this is going to be a chastisement and not the great tribulation. Maybe, just maybe, for a moment, we stop worrying about the Antichrist and we start worrying about all of the Antichrists that are around us. And I don't mean worry like be frightened. We just bump them up higher on our priority list. Deal with your local antichrist. If your mayor is antichrist, like say Lori Lightfoot or Muriel Bowser, maybe you deal with them first. 
Maybe you stand up and challenge them. Maybe you bring the gospel to them. And it doesn't really have to be all at once. Paul says put on the whole armor of God. The helm of salvation, the breastplate of justice, the belt of truth, the shield of faith, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And the shoes that come with the preparedness that is living the gospel of peace. It's good to be prepared. Never in the history of the world have there been this many open antichrists. And maybe the 18,000 antichrists in the high places worldwide present more of a threat than the antichrist to your soul. Because while you're busy looking for the big one, you're missing the one that's actually sneaking up behind you and indoctrinating your children and slaughtering their innocence. To prove that I am a Star Wars fan, all his life I watched as he looked away off into the future Never his mind on where he is. What he is doing. There's a reason why integralism and subsidiarity and distributism are Catholic principles. Because it's about what's in front of you. It's about what's directly around you. Not the things that are off in the distance, hundreds if not thousands of miles away. Not the things that are taking place on the grand scheme. It's not the heretical actions of the Pope. None of that is actually... The Pope... The Pope can fall into total apostasy, can decide to flip the script and start preaching Satanism tomorrow, and it will do nothing to your soul. But you know what will do something to your soul? Failing to see the signs that your 11-year-old boy is falling to pornography addiction. Oh. 11 years old, that's far too young. Is it really? Because 11 years old is the average age of exposure, with many as young as 8 years old. And with the current comprehensive sexual education going on in schools, you can pull that all the way down to kindergarten. Your kindergartner can be falling to porn. And assuredly, God will hold you to more account about the failure to protect your children than he will about whether or not you went out to the most recent Latin mass march. 
And it's not just, obviously, it's not to say that protesting and trying to get the bishops to lay off of the traditional Latin mass is not important. But forest for the trees. If your children fall to pornography, your children, whom God gave to you to protect, surely that ranks a little bit higher than whether or not your local bishop is allowing you to attend the Mass of the Ages, the Apostolic Mass. I, for certain, would attend a Novus Ordo church before I allow my five-year-old, six-year-old, 10-year-old, 12-year-old, 15-year-old to fall to pornography. We can do all the traditional Latin mass stuff at home and still go to a Novus Ordo church because it's my responsibility as a father, your responsibility as a father or a mother to catechize your children, to protect them and, and make them strong in the faith. It's not father's responsibility. Father can be a feckless, vapid, spineless twat all he wants. It is not his responsibility to save the souls of your children. It is your responsibility to save the souls of your, of your children. Not his. He's just supposed to be there to help. He's there to be the minister of the sacraments. And you can manage to obtain all, of that, you, all that you need from the sacraments while still teaching your children at home. Is it difficult? Of course. But salvation starts in the house, in your home. Not in the church. Not in the capital. State capital, national capital, federal capital. And not in Rome. Salvation starts in your heart. Not the Pope's. Not the president's, not the speaker of the house or your governor, in your house. <laughs> I'm sure there will probably be many more voyages of the SS wet blanket. But that's enough for today. This is Caleb the Mechanic with Radio Free Catholic. May God bless you and the Virgin protect you. In nomine Patris et Filii et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. 
Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.